In a world where people are famous for doing nothing, we're here to discover the ordinary individuals who take giant leaps to do something extraordinary. Welcome to Moving Forward. Hello, everyone. This is John Lim with Moving Forward, and today we have a very exciting episode. My guest today is Mark Zakri, television and film producer, screenwriter, and director. Mark has a long list of accomplishments. He has worked on numerous television shows, including Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, Babylon 5, Sliders, and several classic Saturday morning cartoons, which many of you will recognize, including the original He-Man Masters of the Universe, the Smurfs, and Super Friends, to name just a few. On top of that, Mark is an accomplished writer, having penned several books, including the definitive Twilight Zone Companion, which has been cited by such luminaries as Steven Spielberg, and a fantasy series called Magic Time, all of which are available on Amazon. Today, Mark is the modern-day Hollywood entrepreneur, having started his own studio, Space Command Productions, after launching a highly successful Kickstarter campaign. He is currently working on an exciting online sci-fi series, Space Command, which you can find at spacecommandmovie.com. I had the chance to work with Mark as he directed, produced, and co-wrote the wonderful film, Star Trek World Enough in Time, which starred the legendary George Takei and was nominated for both the Hugo and Nebula Awards. And if that wasn't enough, folks, Mark also conducts several high-impact coaching programs for aspiring actors, writers, and directors with his wife, Elaine. And today, Mark is taking time out of his insanely busy schedule from Los Angeles to speak with us today. Welcome, welcome, Mark. How are you today? I'm great, John. It's great to be talking with you. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Mark, you have one of the most extraordinary stories and careers, uh, having started out in Hollywood. And... I think, you know, just listening to that or just thinking about everything you've done, most people would be satisfied with just doing one of those things, you know, being a screenwriter, being a producer, being a director. But you've really kind of combined all of those things. So I'm really excited to sort of sort of unpack your story a little bit more. So I'm going to just start off. And the first question that we always like to ask our guests is, can you fill in a little more on the professional and life resume and tell us a little more about yourself? Specifically, I think our listeners would be fascinated to hear how you started out in the industry and was able to really tie in all of these different components to where you are today. Terrific. Yeah, absolutely happy to, John. Um, Well, I was very lucky because I was born in Santa Monica and grew up in West Los Angeles in the Beverlywood section of LA. And so the studios were right here. So there was a sense, I always had a connection uh, emotionally to the process of making film and TV. It didn't feel like an alien or distant thing to me. Uh, and, uh, and I grew up, when I was 10, I, uh, I saw Ray Bradbury speak at a library. And he said, amongst the things he said, he, he said, um, ideally, your life and your work and your art should all come from the same place. Mm. And I, that, that may have been where I first started to get the notion that I, I might want to be a writer. And then, uh, and then Star Trek, the original Star Trek debuted not long after that. I knew I'd been reading science fiction and comic books and watching TV avidly uh, from when I was a little, little kid, three or four years old. And, um, uh, and, so, and so Star Trek came on, and that was, that was it. I mean, I, was just, I just loved that show. I, I was so avid about that show that I actually recorded it on reel-to-reel tape just in case it never showed again. This is before VCRs, before <laughs> they were made to keep a copy of a TV show. And, um, and then, then uh, when I was 13, the book The Making of Star Trek came out, and that was the first book I'd ever seen or read 
about how TV shows were made. And, uh, and that's really why I think when I decided that I wanted to grow up and, and, uh, and be Gene Roddenberry, essentially. Uh, but, you know, but Rod Serling was a huge influence on me and, and Ray Bradbury also. And with Ray and Rod, both of them, they were writing TV shows and movies and books. And so I had the sense that one could go between those different media. Uh, so, so that was always a, a goal of mine. And, in fact, when I was 27... I sat down and I wrote down all the things I wanted to do. And what I wrote down was uh, I wanted to write our drama, half-hour comedy, TV movies, pilots, feature films, novels, nonfiction books. I wanted to write for the radio, and I wanted to direct. And uh, I've done all those things now. So, uh, so it, I've, I've sort of fulfilled that, that list. But, uh, but the great part, even at this stage of my life, after 40 years as a professional writer... I'm still growing. I'm still learning. I'm still trying to do my best work ever. So, uh, so the fact that uh, that I still have mountains to climb uh, is a good thing. I get out of bed each day uh, thrilled with the challenges and not having all the answers and having to find solutions and um, and having my own studio full of spaceship sets is really a dream come true. Well, Mark, I think you've hit on a couple of things there, and I would love to kind of dig a little deeper. You talked about having grown up. Uh, in the industry, surrounded by the big studios, sort of what led you to take not only that professional leap, but that entrepreneurial leap to start your own studio? Well, you know, it's funny. The, uh, you know, the people I've known all along have sort of been entrepreneurial because there's something about the writer's life. When you're a writer, when you're coming up with stuff out of your head and putting it down on paper and then millions of people see it, you really have a sense of it's up to you to, to make something happen. Mm. And uh, it's not like a job where you, you, you know where you're going every day and you know what you're being told to do and you just kind of, you know, stock those shelves. It's, uh, you know, you, you have to make it out of whole cloth. It's, uh, you know, there, there's, 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 there's a single writer alive who can just sort of sit and wait for the world to come to him. And, um, and also the training is very unusual in the fact that there's really no... At least when I started out, there was no specific training for how to be a writer, producer, in television. I wrote The Twilight Zone Companion to learn how to do the job because there, was, there were no classes in that. And um, so I thought if I, I was 20, 21, 22 years old when I started working on that book, and I thought, well, if I want to learn how to do this job, I better study how the, you know, one of the greatest TV shows ever made was done. And that allowed me to talk to over 100 people who made that show. Uh, I strongly believe in mentoring. I strongly believe, I'm, I both function as a mentor to literally thousands of people in the industry. And, uh, but also, I'm always ongoingly seeking mentors. Uh, for instance, I just wrote a book with Guillermo del Toro, the director. Um, he and I were nominated against each other for the Hugo and Nebula Awards when I did World Enough in Time with you. And, um, and his uh, publisher reached out to me and said, uh, we're looking for someone to co-write this book with Guillermo. It was called Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. It was about his creative process. And, uh, and I said, oh, I'd, I'd love to do it. And when I sat down on the first day to work with Guillermo, he, he was a fan of my work. And he said, I'm surprised you took this gig. And I said, well, I want to learn from you. And then he understood. And so we spent several years uh, in, you know, in close communication and, and really seeing how this brilliant man did what he does. And I've learned a lot from him, as well as from Ray Bradbury, who was another of my mentors, and of course, Rod Serling. You know? So it's, uh, it's been quite a, a wonderful journey. So yeah, so, I'm, so, it's, so basically for me, it was always, um, you know, what television was always, a, it wasn't a one-way mirror. It was basically, a, uh, it was permeable. I had the thought of the people making those TV shows, particularly the writers. They were always my hero. Uh, my heroes, Harlan Ellison and D.C. Fontana and uh, George Clayton Johnson, you know, all of those people were the people I wanted to meet. And as soon as I was old enough to go to science fiction conventions when I was a teenager, I sought them out and they became friends and mentors. 
Well, that's wonderful. A couple of things uh, that are huge takeaways. First of all, recognizing that Hollywood, I think many people who are not in the industry, they they see sort of the glamorous side without sort of realizing that there's a huge business and industry component to that. And I think one of the things that you've been able to do is really take the creative side and the business side and really just kind of marry that together. And I love sort of the takeaway that there was no guide, there was no how-to manual. So you really had to kind of create one on your own. Yeah, and, and I'm, st- I'm, st- I'm still doing that. And, and also it's very interesting because part of it is what kind of nature you have as a creative artist or even as a person because many of my friends are novelists and uh, I've written novels and I've enjoyed it but I can never do that as my sole profession because the isolation of it is not to my, to my taste and, and also I love collaborating with others. I love working with editors and visual effects people and uh, production designers and, and actors and, uh, and even other writers when I've been on writing staffs and um, you know that, that process of collaboration is, very, uh, is, a, is, a, is a huge plus. And you know earlier you were asking, well, you know, in terms of me building a studio and, and, and all of that and, and part of that was again the process of observing how the machine works. And uh, for instance, one of the greatest gifts I ever got was when I was a child, when I was a teenager, around 13, I was given, 12 or 13, I was given a trip to the Star Trek set as a Christmas present by Mm. my friend Fred Bronson. And this is the original Star Trek. And we were there for the shooting of the last episode of the original Star Trek ever shot, Turnabout Intruder. And I got to see how how a soundstage, how a, how a studio functioned, you know, with the cameras and the lights. And there I was on the on the set of the Enterprise, on the bridge and sick bay and the transporter room. And I remember being afraid to touch things because I didn't know what was the real equipment and what was a prop, you know. <laughs> but I remember standing on the transporter pad and looking up and being disappointed that it was just a screw-in light bulb sure. above me. And uh, but I sat in the captain's chair. I did the whole nine yards. And... Um, and, and it was great because at one point, one of the stagehands said, uh, last show of the season, and Majel Barrett, who played Nurse Chapel and the computer voice of the Enterprise, muttered under her breath, last show ever. And the irony was that some 30 years later, I was recording her as the computer voice of the Enterprise for our episode, World Nothing That's Time, right. which was the last, the last thing she ever did, did as a Star Trek actor. And, uh, but, you know, but, but again, when I, I'm, I'm the only writer who wrote for both Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5. And Deep Space Nine was done by a studio, Paramount. It was on the Paramount lot. It cost over $2 million an episode. The Babylon 5, even though it was distributed by Warners, it was shot in a converted warehouse up in northern, uh, the northern part of the valley. And, um, and all the sets were there and the offices under one roof. And they, it was done for less than half of what Deep Space Nine cost. It was, I think it was, um, was 735000 per episode uh, for the first season. And it never cracked a million in five seasons per episode. So it was being done for less than half. With more special effects, more costumes, more alien makeups, more everything, more stunts, uh, and uh, and so I studied how both shows were made, and um, and so then when when I came up with the idea for Space Command, I'd met a young director who would basically rent a warehouse and convert it to a soundstage and make low cost science fiction movies. His name was Neil Johnson. He heard me on Coast to Coast on the radio show that I go on every few months, and uh, he sought me out. And so remembering Babylon Five, how that was shot. Uh, because I wrote for that show, and also I, I started Joe Straczynski in the business as a as a live action story editor on Captain Power, which was a show that I uh, developed for television. Um, I was very interested in that model. It was it was very efficient and cost much less than studio fare. And um, and with Kickstarter, because I mentor so many young people, I started hearing about Kickstarter and Indiegogo, and I had the idea of reaching out directly to my audience and financing it that way, and it worked um, because. The one problem with the studios and the networks is that in the old days, when I was starting out, 
uh, film and television cost millions of dollars to make. You had to shoot on 35 millimeter or 16 millimeter, and the only way to reach an audience of millions of people was via the studios and the networks. And uh, and so they called the tune. And fortunately, I, I was my career was blossoming during the sort of the golden age of science fiction in television and film during the period where they were making Aliens and Terminator and and all the different Star Trek movies and Next Gen and all these great things. And it was a lot of it was very hopeful and very positive. But now in TV and in science fiction movies, it tends to be very dark, with the exception of Star Wars. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very kind of bleak and hopeless and, and grim, and that's not the kind of story I wanted to tell. And, and since, since the kind of story I wanted to tell wasn't really in, in, in step with what the studios and networks were doing now, but I knew it was in step with what, what the audience would enjoy, I thought, well, why, why not just cut out the middleman? And that's worked extremely well. Well, I think that's the true definition of entrepreneurship, uh, Mark, is that y- you have seen the direction and the trends that the big studios are going in, and you've worked with the big studios. You were, you yes. were, you were part of that industry, but rather than stay that course, you have decided you have a vision that you want to really bring to the forefront, that you want to share with an audience. And so yes. I, I think one of the themes that we can take away from this is that you've not only develop something that you're passionate about, but you've done it in a way that allows you the freedom to to bring the vision that you have to the forefront and not be hampered down by a bureaucracy or a studio. Exactly. And and, and the cool part is, I mean, literally, I literally sit down, write exactly what I want to write, then I reach out to the actors that I want to hire, and then we shoot it. It's that simple. There's no, (laughs) there's, there's, I don't know, I don't have anyone looking over my shoulder. So, (laughs) For instance, to give you an example, uh, you know, the, the actors I cast in the first Space Command film, we're doing six of them to start with. Um, I cast Mira Furlan and Bill Mumy, who I worked with on Babylon 5. Mira also was in Lost, and uh, Bill Mumy, of course, was in Lost in Space and Twilight Zone. And, mm-hmm. uh, and Bob Picardo, who's the, the holographic doctor in Star Trek Voyager. And Bruce Boxleitner showed up for a day. He was the star of Babylon 5. And, and Doug Jones, who played Pan and Pam's lab, Pan's Labyrinth and, and Ape Sapien and Hellboy. He's also in The Strain now and Falling Skies. And, you know, and, and Mike Harney from Orange is the New Black. I mean, all of them, I just reached out to them and said, you want to be in this? And with Mike Harney, literally, I was having lunch with him. He's a friend. And I said, you want to be in Space Command? He said, sure. It was that simple. What, and, it, uh, it makes sense, Mark, that you've, you've attracted such high talent because, you know, they can see the benefits of having someone who's not only in charge of the writing, the producing, the directing, but really is free from the constraints of working with those, the big studio model. Yes, so. yes. Well, you know, the thing is, if I'd gone to a studio or a network with this cast, they would have said, well, who's Mira Furlan? Who's, ba- who's Bill and Mummy? The audience loves these actors, but the, but the studios, the networks, would have probably said, well, there's some kid who was just on the show on the CW and he can't act, but we want him, and, you know, and then you're stuck. And, but, and, and again, I don't mean to rag on the studios or networks. You know, they, um, I've worked with a lot of great studio and network executives. They've been very smart. They've improved the show. But, but anytime you sell a show or you're doing a pilot, it's a roll of the dice who you get as your executive. And they might be on your wavelength or they might not, but they're paying the bills, and so you have to listen to them. And, and furthermore, you know, before I, when I came up with Space Command, even before I did the Kickstarter campaign, many of my friends uh, are writer-producers who run network shows, and a number of them said, listen, let's t- just walk this into a network. They wanted to partner with me, and they're really talented people, and that would not have been a problem. But the problem was that likely, the likelihood is we would have sold the pilot. And then what happens is I could have written the script, and they would have decided not to make the show, but then they would own the property. Or they would make the pilot and not greenlight the series, and they would still own it. And, and or they would make the show and they, their notes would wreck it. And so there were so many possibilities where the thing would get stopped or wrecked and I wouldn't own it and I wouldn't be able to take it back. But I thought, well, why not just go directly to my audience? Now, the interesting thing is 
we're, we just finished shooting the first film. We're editing it now. Then we'll add the, add the special effects. We're going to shoot the second one in, uh, in uh, late May, early June. And I've written the first four, and I've outlined five and six. And, and it, once the first film is uh, near completion, we're going to reach out to, to networks and Internet platforms and see about partnering with them to roll this out as a series. Uh, so instead of being six films, it would be 12 episodes of the first season. But in that case, we've already created what the show is. They'll be basically dancing to my tune, or at least let's let's put it in a different way. They'll be um, they'll be on my wavelength, and they'll be uh, excited about what we're doing. So it won't. So that will. That at that point, it's fine. And I and I welcome input if they understand what I'm up to and like it. And uh, so it's so that in that case, then they can bring marketing and distribution and all of that, and that can help. Um, but again, if that doesn't ha- happen, then you know we'll distribute it. Whichever way works to make to reach our audience. So, uh, so I'm very open to a lot of different possibilities in that regard. Well, that's fantastic. I, again, I, I love how you're exercising the power of leverage to keep your vision intact, no matter which medium you're going to approach, whether it's television or taking it online. And of course, yes. you know, we see so many series that are having such success on Netflix. Uh, yes. You mentioned, you know, Orange is the New Black. And of, of yes. course, there's House of Cards. So you're really, really playing to what Rain, Wayne Gretzky talked about when he said, play to where the hockey puck is going to lie, because that's yes. that's exactly the model that you're, you're developing with uh, uh, Space Command. Well, Mark, yeah. you've done so many things. And just kind of thinking about where you are today and where you began, I know you touched on this a little bit, but could you really distill down what your passion is and mm-hmm. and what kind of motivates you in terms of getting up every day and taking on the, the daunting task of not only producing a show, directing and writing a show, but, but running an entire studio? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think my passion is you know, when I was a kid, uh, my parents divorced when I was three, and I was, I was, you know, that was, of course, a major blow. And I, I turned to science fiction to try to make sense of the universe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, that was, and I was reading Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke and Ray Bradbury. And, uh, and then Star Trek came on the air. Twi- I, I, I saw Twilight Zone first and Lost in Space and then, and then Star Trek. And, and Star Trek was a huge teacher for me. You know, because you're always looking at who should I learn from? Who who do I how, who will teach me how to live live this life? How how to stand in this world? And I remember I saw the first season of Star Trek was astonishing because week after week after week there were stories that were unlike anything that had been on, done on television before. And I particularly remember City on the Edge of Forever, which was a great script by Harlan Ellison. And every TV show ever done before that that I'd ever seen. The hero falls for the girl, the girl's life is threatened, and the hero saves the girl. It was just a given. It was an obvious uh, way the universe worked. But in that episode, uh, Kirk has gone back in time to the 30s, and he falls in love with Joan Collins, who plays Edith Keeler, who's a, a, a charity worker. And he discovers that unless she dies, the, the future will not turn out the way it's supposed to turn out. And so he has to be responsible for the woman he loves being hit by a truck, mm. literally. And... I was astonished because what because it was all of a sudden it was like the 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 universe was a bigger place the rules had changed but they had changed in a way that was very important because it said that sometimes you you have to do what you know is right even if it breaks your heart you have to do something that that for the greater good you have to be a larger person you have to have um heroism and nobility and honor and loyalty rule you and I thought this was a very important lesson, and a, and a lesson clearly derived from the real world, not from fiction, where you can ha- always have a happy ending. That sometimes you don't have a happy ending, but you do what you know is right. And so, and so for me, you know, 
those kind of lessons made me the person I am. And what I saw in, in a lot of the TV that I grew up with that, that showed a hopeful vision of the future and a lot of the science fiction I was reading, I saw that compassion and love and loyalty and honor were real and that they could be a counterweight against all the evil and chaos in the real world. And a lot of television and film nowadays is very negative and very dark, and I think that does a disservice to the audience because I think one can draw a conclusion that 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 evil and chaos are more powerful in the world, but I don't agree with that. I think that compassion and love and, and honor and loyalty are a counterweight against evil and chaos, and I, I personally think they're stronger. And I think that the more that we, as we have a responsibility as writers and as artists to tell what we perceive as the truth of the world, but, it, but I think it should be a hopeful truth, because if it's a hopeful truth, people can take action in the real world, in their lives. And, and one lesson that I, that I saw that was very useful for me was years ago I was invited to a Star Trek convention because I wrote for Next Gen and DS9 and so forth. And there were Star Trek fans and they were dressing in the costumes. They were talking about how much they loved this episode and that episode. And then I found out that their Star Trek club, because they, they took the lesson from Star Trek, not just the minutiae, that their Star Trek club did works of charity in the real world ongoingly. Mm. And they had had a major impact on their community. And I realized, wow, that show, that TV show, did something in the real world that helped thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And, and I thought, okay, that's, that's, a, that's a power that, that isn't just an hour's entertainment. And so as writers, I think we have an obligation to create something that isn't just di diverting people, that isn't just filling up their days or wasting their time. And, and that doesn't mean you're on a soapbox or lecturing, but it just means that you're telling a hopeful truth that can move people and, um, and, t and, and, and tell them something about life. I think when we did World Enough in Time, which is on my website. You can actually go to markzickby.com and watch the entire episode. You can click through. Um, I mean, that was me boiling down every single thing I know about life into an hour. And the message ultimately in that, in that episode is where one character says, it's not how long we live, it's how we live that matters. Let my life mean something. Mm. And, you know, yes, and I remember. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think, you know, and, and that's me speaking from my heart. It's that, that's it right there. I mean, I'm I'm telling the truth of my life and sharing it with millions of people, and that's a huge uh, honor. And I do not, uh, and I'm I'm grateful every single day for the opportunity to do that. Well, I love that, Mark. Um, actually, this leads perfectly to our next question. Since you've done so much and you've accomplished so much, can you share with our listeners a time where you failed or faced mm -hmm. a big challenge? that seemed insurmountable at the time, but it ended up being a valuable learning experience or part sure. of your road to success. Sure, sure, I can. Um, well, TV is a very strange beast, working mm -hmm. in television. And for over 20 years, I was very, very successful in TV, um, uh, probably even more like 25 years. I, would, I just went from job to job to job. And fortunately, I was working on shows I loved, and I was writing things that mattered deeply to me. And on every show I wrote for, even when I was a story editor, I never even started as a staff writer. My entry-level position was story editor. My, you know, I would let my bosses know that I preferred not to be rewritten, that I wanted what I wrote to be what got shot, what got the audience. And they fortunately valued my abilities and gave me, um, gave me that, that opportunity. But, you know, but, but TV is a very odd, TV and film both are very, very odd. You may have noticed the, uh, the uh, findings that were just released by the, um, the Writers Guild where it talked about how few uh, writers of color are working and how few female writers are, are working and how few older writers are working. That, and, um, and so it is, is, is Hollywood ra racist, sexist, ageist? Yes. Does, should that stop you? No. 
<laughs> you know, look, Sh- Shonda Rhimes is doing pretty pretty well, and thank God because uh, because she changes the way the game works. But but as I was getting into my early forties, network executives and producers and various other people started talking about how I was getting to be over the hill. At, at, so at forty two, at forty two, and my agent retired from the business, and I started having difficulty getting another agent and difficulty even getting my work read. And it was very, very surprising to me that everything could just stop like that. And I was, I was doing books. I sold the Magic Time trilogy based on a pilot I'd written. But I kept trying to find different ways to crack back into the business. You know, various heads of agencies would say to me, well, we could get your career started again, but it would be too much trouble. And this was just amazing to me because I'd been earning very well. So I thought, okay, let's see what we can do. Because I was still determined to write and I was still determined to reach a mass audience. I was, I was still on top of my game creatively, but it was just the, stu- the rules had changed. And what you, what you find in life is, you can either, in this life, you can either, when you're faced with adversity, you can either step back or you can step up. And I've always been someone who steps up. And so if the rules changed, if stuff that worked no longer works, come up with something else. Come, don't just stay in helplessness. And so something very interesting happened. First of all, you did World Enough in Time, and that got nominated with Hugo and the Nebula, which was terrific. It was seen by millions of people around the world, and it gave me my first directorial effort since college. And, uh, and so I pulled that one off. But, and that was sort of a sample that I thought would show what I could do. But that still didn't work to get me back in the game. So what I did was, it was I, I got a letter that said that there had been a, a lawsuit against the studios and the networks and the talent agencies, an ageism lawsuit. And I wasn't a plaintiff in that suit, but there had been a judgment against the agencies and the studios to the tune of $70 million. And they, had sa- and they said, you can put in a claim. You might be eligible for some of this. And I saw that as an opportunity. And, and the reason things you know, s- stopped wasn't just ageism. You know, I'd been very difficult to work with in certain ways. I'd been sort of arrogant in my youth, and I had to clean up that, how to be a worker among workers. Uh, I'd, I'd asked people for advice, and they'd given me advice. And, um, but still, ageism had been a part of that. And so I thought, well, I'll put in a claim. And I kept records, and, and as I said, heads of agencies had said they, they could start my career going again, but you know, one of them said, well, five years ago I would have taken it on. Look at that. <laughs> well, that's you know, good, you know, nice of them to say that, but it doesn't, it doesn't help me. So I put in a claim. And they sent me back a letter saying, we've judged your case and you're eligible. Well, that was great. So that was just when I was starting to hear about Kickstarter. And I thought, well, why don't I try a Kickstarter campaign and I can use some of this money to help me mount that campaign. And I thought, whatever I'm raising, I'll I'll allocate 10% of that ahead of time before the money comes to me from Kickstarter. I'll use that to market the Kickstarter campaign. That's exactly what I did. And ultimately, my Kickstarter campaign, was the target was $75,000 to raise in two months. And I raised that in three days. And we kept going, and I raised $221,000. So I used about 20000 of that um, thirty-five to market the campaign, to put on a party at Comic-Con, to, to bang the drum. And, and as a result, that gave me the seed money to start my own studio, to get, um, to get Space Command going. Now, during that period, I was also pitching to the studios and networks. Uh, for instance, my friend Ray Bradbury, who was a dear friend and mentor for over 10 years, he was a great science fiction writer, one of my favorite books is The Martian Chronicles, and uh, I learned that, that Ray had 22 Mars stories that followed the same structure but were not in The Martian Chronicles. So I said, can I take these and develop these as a, web, as a, as a miniseries? Mm. And Ray said yes. So I outlined an eight-hour miniseries called Ray Bradbury's Lost Mars, and I reached out to my friend Michael Nankin, who had been a director on Battlestar Galactica, and I proposed that I would write it, he would direct it, and we'd both produce it. And I went and I pitched it to the, to the studios and the networks, and they didn't buy it. 
And they said, well, Ray Bradbury's Mars isn't like the Mars we're seeing on the, on the, on the Mars landers. And I said, well, no, um, Oz isn't over the rainbow either. This is one of the great fantasy worlds ever created, but they just didn't get it, whereas the audience would have. Yeah. And so, so all of these things, so, so what I'm basically saying is these different things that one could perceive as a failure, I wasn't getting hired, I was pitching stuff and it wasn't going, what they were telling me, rather than taking it as failure, and I'm not saying that that was a pleasant experience, but I was saying, okay, look for other opportunities, look for other opportunities. I was still committed to writing and directing and producing and reaching a mass audience. I just had to find a different way to skin the cat. And so, but one thing that was very useful in that regard was, I'd go over about once a month to Ray Bradbury's house and we would just hang out and talk. And Ray would tell me about his disappointments and his um, uh, failures. I mean, uh, the, the, the movie, after To Kill a Mockingbird, the next movie that that director and Gregory Peck were going to do was, was The Martian Chronicles. And Ray actually spent several years writing a screenplay of The Martian Chronicles, and it's a terrific script, and it never got made. Mm. And Ray told me about other disappointments he'd had and, and frustrations, and, uh, but that didn't stop him. And when I knew Ray, he was in his 80s and 90s, and he would get up every day and he would write. And he was, he was publishing at least two books a year through that period and having plays put on and, and so forth. So I thought, well, God, I can't, I can't complain. I can't wallow in self-pity if this guy's getting up every day and still swinging for the fences. And, you know, even Guillermo del Toro, you know, his dream project was a movie called At the Mountains of Madness. And James Cameron was going to produce it, and, and Tom Cruise was going to star in it. And this is just after James Cameron did Avatar, and, and Guillermo had been doing many, many successful films. And after 18 months of developing the project, the studio decided not to make it. So Guillermo felt sorry for himself for about a weekend, and then he jumped in and did, did Pacific Rim. You know, so, so I choose these people as my, my role models and my mentors because they're just, you know, they have, they're just tough as nails. And, uh, and when I was doing the Star Trek episode, World Enough in Time, it was a very difficult shoot, as you know. I remember, yeah. And, but my mantra to myself during that shoot was, I'm made of iron and nothing will stop me. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Mark, I mean, a couple of things that I think are just incredible takeaways. First of all, you have never let adversity stop you and yeah. and you've never put your future or your career in someone else's hands so that's i think a huge takeaway you've been able also to pivot uh, you know you've held on to your vision but if one route doesn't work you'll find several other routes that will lead to even more doors and, and opportunities and third yeah. i think this is huge just the power of relationships and what you have learned from other people at different levels people who've been in the industry for so many years who continue to face those types of challenges and setbacks yeah. and are able to just just you know maybe take a weekend but don't take any longer than that and just push forward yes well also also i think it's very important to surround yourself with people who love you and are supportive of you, so that even when you falter and even when you have doubts, which you will, just just keep going and, and stay the course. So you know you, you know that I've been married to my wife, my, my dear wife Elaine, for I've been married for 37 years and together with her for 38 years. I met her when I was 20, and she's directing and writing and producing with me now. And she has her own projects, but she also works with me. And and you you of course saw her working with me on when we were doing the Star Trek episode. And uh, you know, and so that's enormously helpful. She's very much on my wavelength. But I also run a roundtable of writers and directors and actors and producers and, and editors and composers, uh, novelists, that meets every week here in L.A. We've been doing it for 21 years, and it's thousands of people. And I also teach classes where I mentor 10 writers and directors and actors at a time. I strongly believe in, in paying it forward. And, you know, years ago I used to hang out with a group of writers who were very cynical, and I would come home depressed. And, and there's, a, there's a great writer screenwriter named John Sales. He's also a director. And I once saw him being interviewed on television, and he said, cynicism is cowardice. 
And I absolutely believe that. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and I think you need to be a beacon of hope for others. And I think, um, you know, and, and you need to really listen to, to people who, who see possibility, people who are positive in this world. Well, especially but, in Hollywood. It is a tough town and it's a it tough is. industry. So I it think is. you need to have that to, to not only survive, but to succeed. I think so too. But also I think there's monstrous materialistic people. And then there's the Hollywood of good-hearted good souls who are creating wonderful work that's, that's touching the hearts of millions of people around the world. You know, Guillermo del Toro is one of those. I've met J.J. Abrams and, and, and we've had lunch on, on a number of times and he's a really good guy and I've met Spielberg and he's a really good guy. These are people who are coming from creative enthusiasm and passion and they're, they're not cynical. And, um, and so those are the people who you want to look to. I mean, Ray Bradbury, till, till this, the last day on earth, very funny, I'll tell you a story. One, at one time I was at Ray's house and, uh, and he, he said, I've got a secret to tell you. And he motioned me forward, and he leaned in, and I leaned in, and he, and he whispered to me, I'm 13 years old. And he was in his, <laughs> eight, he was in his 80s at that, at that point, but, but I knew what he meant, because in his heart, he was 13. He still yeah. had that passion. He still had that joy. Well, so, uh, I think that's so important, too, to hang yeah. on to that. You know, it's, it's something that is so easy to let go of as, as you kind of get older or progress in your career. But to hang on to that kind of youthful optimism, I think that's what will just keep you going and going and going, no matter you know, what stage you are in your life or yes. career. Yeah, and that doesn't mean you don't have you know, bad days and you don't get bummed out. I mean, that's, that's the thing that I think is very important. I, at one point, I, I ran into Guillermo at... Uh, at uh, Comic-Con, he was signing books, and so I sat down and signed, signed some of the books together that, that he and I had co-written. And, and I, I was talking to him as a manager, and I said, what people don't understand is how hard this is. I mean, that everyone who's working, making something wonderful, they're working really hard. And, and that doesn't mean it's not joyful. It is. But it's hard work. And it's not um, a cakewalk, no matter what it is. I mean, you know, and the more you study how films get made and how TV shows get made and even how novels get written, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of work and you have to be disciplined and you have to be committed and you have to stay the course. And, uh, you know, but at the end you, you create something that lives far beyond you and, uh, and is seen by people around the world. And I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story. Sometimes even, this, even things you don't know that you've done in terms of making the world better uh, can happen. Uh, you know, you mentioned I started in animation when I was in my early 20s and, uh, and someone recently sent me a letter, and they asked if uh, if they could send me a. Cu- they said they were a fan of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, and one of my episodes was was one that one of their favorites. And could they send mm. me some frame grabs, some still pictures from the episode, and for me to sign? I said sure. And the guy wrote me a letter along with these pictures, and he said, you know, when I was a kid, uh, my dad went to a Halloween party and he was murdered. Oh, and, wow. and 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 He-Man is kept me, you know, something that one of the positive things of my childhood, one of the positive things that kept me going. And now he's an adult, and he's he's living a life, and you know, and 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 yet something that I wrote that was just a, a week or two of work in my life, you know, meant an enormous amount to this to this person, and that means a lot to me. That's 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 terrific, you know. And so you don't know what effect what you're doing will have, and uh, but it's but it's, it's terrific to know that we we can have that kind of effect. Well, that is very powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that, Mark. Um, You've talked a lot about influences in your life. So you may have already answered this next two-part question, but I'm going to go ahead and ask anyway. So the first part of the question, is there a particular movie, book, song, or play that has been greatly influential in your life? I know you talked a lot about Star Trek. You talked a lot about uh, Twilight Zone. But, uh, you know, are there any other specific influences in that medium that has influenced you? Tons of stuff, tons of stuff. Um, I, I, Blade Runner is probably my favorite movie. I love that film. I watch it often for inspiration. Uh, Aliens is another great film. Mm. Uh, Martian Chronicles is one of my favorite books. 
uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is also one of my favorite books and movies. I, I fortunately got to, got to have lunch with Horton Foote, who wrote the screenplay of that movie, won an Oscar for it. And, uh, and, and I've, I've corresponded with, with Harper Lee, who wrote the novel. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, there's tons and tons of inspiration. You know, every, every movie or book or TV show or comic book, I read comics when I was a kid, uh, so there were many comics that I loved as a kid. Superman, when I, you know, from the, from the 60s when I was a kid, uh, was very influential on me. It's, you know, you, it's almost anything. You can turn on the TV now or the computer, and I mean, it's amazing how accessible stuff is now. There was a, there was a TV show in the 1950s called Space Patrol. It was live television. It was a science fiction show. I only saw it as an adult in reruns, but it was a great show, and it starred Ed Kemmer, who was a wonderful actor. He'd been a hero in World War II. He was a, an aviator flying, flying uh, P-51 Mustangs, and... Uh, there was a convention, a sign convention, and, and he and I got together. And, and he's actually a huge inspiration for, for Space Command. I, I named Captain Kemmer after Ed Kemmer, our, our hero. <laughs> oh, that's and, a great uh, bit of trivia there. It's another great inspiration. And, uh, you know, you, can, you, know you, you never know where, where those inspirations are going to come from, but uh, they're all around us if you're just, you're just open to them and, and looking for what's going to speak to your heart. Absolutely. Hey, Moving Forward listeners, if you're enjoying today's episode, consider supporting the podcast. You can purchase a copy of the Corporate Clichés Adult Coloring Book or try out Amazon Prime or Audible using one of my affiliate links, which you can find in the write-up for any of the episodes at bemovingforward.com. Well, Mark, a second part to the question, and I know you've talked a lot about Ray Bradbury and Guillermo del Toro. Um, is there a uh, any other person that you've connected with that has left a lasting impression towards sure. you finding your career path and life's passion? Yes. I think Harlan, Harlan Ellison mentioned that he wrote City on the Edge of Forever, which won the Hugo uh, and the Writers Guild Award. And, uh, uh, but Harlan, I also read his books when I was a kid, and, and I heard him on the radio when I was a teenager, and he was very, very, very pugnacious. Harlan told the story of a writer he knew who came to him back in the 60s and was just overjoyed because he said, I just pitched the plot of a movie the Flight of the Phoenix to Star Trek as a Star Trek story, and they didn't recognize it, uh, that I was ripping off this movie, and they bought it. And ironically, it was actually an episode of Star Trek that wasn't that bad. It was Galileo 7. But, it, but, but Harlan said, look, you cheated them. You not only cheated them, but you cheated yourself because you had the opportunity to take something from your heart, something that was unique mm. and fresh and truthful, and, and share it with the world, and instead you just ripped off a movie and, got, and thought you got away with something. Mm. And, and that, that, that story really left a huge impression on me because, again, it told me to really push myself to find the emotional truth of my life. And, um, and, that, and I heard that Harlan told that story when I was a teenager. And so, and then I, he also talked about a writing workshop called Clarion that was a science fiction writing workshop, science fiction writers, 25 writing students for six weeks, and, and many of them became the great science fiction writers of the next generation. And, um, and I went to that workshop when I was 19, and I sold my first short story there. So Harlan had a huge influence on my life. Well, that's great. I love the fact that the two influences in your life have really not only instilled in you kind of the road to finding your life's passion, but also doing it authentically, being yes. true to yourself and not taking shortcuts to do that and, and yes. not, you know, compromising your standards, your vision, your ethics in doing so. Yes. I think that's really powerful. Well, you know, this is great, John, and I'm glad you mentioned authenticity because, interestingly enough, you know, since I did the Kickstarter campaign, I've been selling investment shares in Space Command to the to the fans and the backers, and 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 financing the second, the first, and the second film that way. Ongoingly, that's something I plan to do. And I was talking to someone; one of our backers uh, reached out to me to find out about investing in Space Command. And I was talking to him today, and he's in Florida. And I used the word authenticity because I said, you know, 
all I have to do is tell the truth and speak from my heart and people will invest in what I'm doing because they'll understand that I'm, I'm, there's no chicanery here. There's no, it's, I'm, not, I'm not conning anyone or pulling a fast one. I'm literally just saying, this is from my heart. This is what I want to create in the world. This is how the investment will work and the return I'll hope you get. But one can always lose one shirt on any investment. But, but that's not what I anticipate will happen. And, and I just plant my feet and tell the truth. And I'm doing that in my art and I'm doing that in my work. And, you know, I talked about earlier when, when Ray Bradbury said, ideally your life and your work and your art should come from the same place. And here I am. What Ray said back then has had the ripple effect to this moment in my life. And uh, he was right. He was absolutely right. And that doesn't mean you can always pull that off. I mean, I don't, you know, if I go to a, a Dairy Queen and there's someone working behind the counter, that's probably not their passion. But hopefully there is something in life that, that is their passion. That might be raising horses or it might be just raising a family. And I, you know, I don't think life can be perfect necessarily, but I think we have to find the thing in our life that does make us want to get out of bed and something that is ours, where our heart lives. And sometimes that can't be our work, and sometimes that can't be our career, but it has to be something, because, um, because that, that's why we're here in this life. I think that's an important lesson to take to heart. Well, you know, Mark, you've just anticipated our next question, and I think I'm excited to ask you this. So what advice do you have for anyone listening to this who may be struggling to find their passion in life? I, w- I would say, try stuff. You know, try stuff. It's, uh, don't be afraid to fail. You know, Ray, Ray Bradbury's great motto was jump off the cliff and build your wings on the way down. And, <laughs> I love that. You know, That's great. And, and Ray told me that you know, he spent 10 years writing before he wrote, wrote a single word that he thought was worth anything, that was uniquely his. And, um, and he told me, because he, he would write every single day, and one day he would sort of write down a title, kind of free associate, and then write a story in one sitting based on that title. And he wrote down the words, The Lake. And he, and he remembered a time when he was um, eight years old and he had a little girlfriend who was seven. And they went swimming in Lake Michigan and he came out of the water and she never did. She drowned. And he wrote a story called The Lake that was based on that. Mm. It was a ghost story about that little girl. And he said when he, when he finished the story, he said tears were coursing down his face because he had known he had written something that was uniquely his, that no one else could have written and that was truthful. And he said it took two more years of writing every single day to write another story that was uniquely his. And then he got better where he could write more and more often stuff that was just his. And, and that's how he built his career. And I once said to him, I said, I just figured out what business you're in. I said, it's not writer. I said, you're in the Ray Bradbury business. And he, said, yes. he said, yes, that's exactly right. And so, and so what I would say to anyone is, you know, try stuff. If you wanted to play the piano, try playing the piano. If you wanted to go skydiving, do that. Do whatever your heart says might be worth trying. And if you try enough of those things, you'll find the, the, the thing that really speaks to your heart. And also, talk to people. Open your mouth. Reach out. You know, I, I would say, say, unplug your TV and go out every single day, every single night. Talk to people. Be with people. Try new things. Have authentic experiences. And ultimately, you'll find what is your life's purpose. And also, by the way, it may not bring you money. You might have to do something else for money. You know, when I stopped being able to earn as a TV writer, I said, well, I'm not going to stop regardless of that. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. I earned as a TV writer. But when that stopped, it didn't stop me because I understood that it, what, what I'm doing is from my heart. And if I earn money writing, that's fine. If I don't earn my, money writing, I'm still in that conversation with my audience. And hopefully Space Command will make a lot of money, particularly for my, my investors, I hope. But that's not 
my primary reason for doing it. If it makes money, great. But if it reaches people, I mean, I've already succeeded with Space Command. I've, I've shot the first movie. It's wonderful. We're going to be refining it. And very soon it'll be out to the world and the world will, will see what we've been up to. And I think they'll really like it. So, um, so I yeah. Think that's fantastic. Well, well, Mark, just a couple of very, very strong takeaways from what you just said. Number one, try stuff. Don't be afraid to fail. And clearly from your, from your journey, from your story, you have not been afraid to take risks, to try different things, to find your path towards your passion. I love that. Yes. Number yes. two, I think it, it speaks volumes that getting back to that, be authentic to yourself. I, I love that takeaway that Ray Bradbury wasn't in the industry as a writer. He was in the Ray Bradbury industry. Yes. And so just, I think the takeaway is just kind of be true to yourself, invest in yeah. yourself and allow that part of yourself to kind of come through in whatever it is you're contemplating or pursuing or trying important is, as I said before, surround yourself with people who believe in your dream, but also recognize that initially a dream will sound crazy. I mean, for instance, um, uh, Ray told me that, uh, that when he was young, he went to a psychiatrist and he said, I want to be the greatest writer who ever lived. And after this first session, the psychiatrist said to him, well, I think you should start coming twice a week and I think we can cure you of this. And Ray Bradbury left the, left the psychiatrist's office and de- decided that instead of that, he would just go for it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and Guillermo del Toro, when Guillermo was growing up in, in Guadalajara, in Jalisco, in Mexico, there was no one, there was no way to make the kind of films he wanted to make in Mexico. He spent 10 years building a makeup effects and visual effects company to build the infrastructure to make his end. He spent 10 years being a provider to other productions, building that infrastructure. And if when he was a kid, if he had asked 100 people what the chances were that, that, that a kid in Jalisco, Mexico could become an A-class, uh, you know, a world-class A-list director, uh, 100 people would, that he asked would have said, you have no chance. But fortunately, your future and your life is not a majority opinion. You, as, a, as, as your, it's your life and your opinion outvotes everyone else in the world. And you then have to just walk that road and be committed to it. That's awesome. Well, thank you very much for sharing that, Mark. What is next for you? Well, you know, it's um, right now I'm getting ready to, sec- to shoot the second Space Command movie and I'm writing the Making of Space Command book. You know, we'll see. It's uh, it's interesting. I, you know, uh, Elaine and I wrote a pilot called Magic Time some years ago, where all the machines in the world stop running and magic comes back. And I sold it as a trilogy of novels and audiobooks and a radio play. And eventually, I'd like to shoot that that project. And so once once we got, have Space Command, where I've done the six films, you know, I might want to do Magic Time. But you know, I never know. You know, it's uh, the, the great thing about being a writer is. Year to year, I never know what I'm going to do. If if, uh, if if 10 years ago someone had said, you're going to be shooting a Star Trek episode with George Takei in upstate New York, I would have said, really? That's surprising. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so uh, so the, the quality of surprise is a great part of this career. And, and so uh, so in a year, I don't know what I'll be doing. In, in, in 10 years, I don't know what I'll be doing. But, uh, but hopefully it'll be exci- as exciting as what I'm doing now. I think it will be. Well, thank you. That That's great, Mark. And I, I love just sort of the... The, the just the openness to to what the future will bring. Well, Mark, I have no doubt that people listening to this have been inspired, have been touched, and are listening to this and would love to make a connection with you. What is the best way sure. that our listeners can make a connection with you? 
Uh, well, you know, um, they can email me at markzikri at gmail.com. Uh, I've got a Mark Zikri Facebook page uh, and markzikri.com. And if they're in L.A., they're welcome to come to the roundtable I run. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to be, uh, to be an inspiration to people. I'm glad to be that. And, uh, you know, it's a two-way street. I'm here because so many people inspired me and helped me and, uh, and were there for me when I needed them. And I'm happy to be that for others. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the great part about this career is you can be anywhere anywhere in the world, and you can be part of this wonderful, wonderful community of film and television uh, and, and, and now web series and, and all of these things, books. It's, uh, it's all, we call it deliverable content now, yeah. and I think that's great. And yeah. uh, I'm so glad that we have, we have all these wonderful changes in, in media that allow us to connect. And also, Mark, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about your uh, mentoring program and uh, your coaching programs? Yeah, well, I teach uh, a class where I mentor people 10 at a time here in L.A. or, or individually long distance anywhere in the world. I've had students in the U.K. and, and Asia uh, via Skype, and people can hire me to read scripts and give notes or consult one-on-one. You, my website for that is called supermentors.com, and I'm happy to talk to people and, and give them all the details in that. It's fa- I'll tell you something great. One of, my, one of the people I'm mentoring, she just had a huge bestseller, and she just got hired to write the feature film of that bestseller. Oh, that's fantastic. That is wonderful. And one other thing that's great is... Uh, um, I can't mention the name yet, but someone that you and I both know just got cast in uh, in the lead in Shonda Rhimes' new new pilot. Really? And, oh, that is fantastic! Well, wow, wonderful. I think I have a feeling I know who it is, but I'll yeah. I'll keep that uh, between you and I. So that's wonderful. Didn't, yeah. That's wonderful news. Well, Mark, thank you so much. I know you've got such a busy schedule, but taking the time out to share your extraordinary story. It has been a pleasure and a privilege speaking with you today. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, John. And uh, and I look forward to the next time we talk very much. Absolutely. We hope to have you back soon. Folks, this has been Moving Forward, and we have been speaking today with Mr. Mark Zakri. Mark will be posting all of the information on our website. So thank you so much and all the best to you in all of your wonderful endeavors. Thank you. Thank you, John. Happy to talk to you. Have a great week. Bye. Now it's time for you to move forward and discover the extraordinary in you. Moving Forward is produced by John Lim and BeMovingForward.com. All rights reserved.